you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as I said at the beginning of the service, we are uh, early on in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we're picking up in verse 13, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And uh, I encourage you to turn there in your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, it is printed for you in the uh, worship guide that you picked up on the table when you arrived. So Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Let me pray and ask God's hand upon us as we open up his word, and then we will dive right in. Lord, as we open your word, uh, this is your word, it is not ours. Therefore, help us to study it rightly, soundly, appropriately. We pray you would write its eternal and glorious truths upon our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In your mind, I want you to go back to middle school. I want you to go back to all of the awkwardness that was middle school. Specifically, do you remember school dances? They didn't be in a school gym or cafeteria. The lights would be low, not too low. There'd be decorations on the walls. Maybe a disco ball is spinning from up high. A gym teacher or some other teacher is uh, spinning his favorite hits uh, as DJ for the night. And the most notable thing about these dances, though, would be what? Middle school dances. It'd be boys on one side of the room, girls on the other side of the room kind of swaying from side to side. Girls are standing there, you know, looking a whole lot more disinterested than perhaps they really are, looking as if they'd rather be anywhere else, or at least that was my experience. Um, Maybe tinkering on their phones. You see, to sixth grade Stephen, these girls were way out of his league. Those girls could be anywhere else. I just figured that they were going to immediately leave the dance and go do things that cooler, more adult people do, like smoke cigarettes and hang out with college students. The guys, on the other hand, myself and the crew that I would hang out with at school dances, we would be doing our best to look cool. We'd probably have enough body spray on to kill a small dog. We would, but no matter how cool we thought we looked, we would just be going home to Doritos and Dungeons and Dragons. These two groups, guys on one side, girls on the other, kind of swaying and keeping their distance from one another before social distancing was cool. Is that how you picture the relationship between the world and the church? Maybe the church is hoping to influence the world by having no interaction with her. And the world is fine with the church staying in her cocoon, away from any real impact, any real importance any voice to the pressing matters of today, because frankly, the world does not think that the church has answers that speak to the problems of today. Now imagine a dance or a party a number of years down the road. Those middle schoolers are now in college, and any kind of distance between the two has evaporated. Everyone is mingling, dancing, enjoying drinks and laughter, and doing everything that makes a bar or a party a hotbed for the spread of COVID-19. Maybe that's how you picture the relationship between the church and the world. No distinguishable difference. They look exactly the same. 
The church is hoping to influence the world by being exactly like her, living like her, speaking to the same issues as her, with the same voice as her. So we have two illustrations here. Two illustrations of how we can view the relationship between the church and the world. Should we be separated and keeping our distance? Or should we be so enmeshed together that you can't tell any difference? Well, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, it presents us with a different understanding of the relationship of the church to the world. It presents us with an understanding of this relationship that is not detached or distant from the world, but is noticeably distinguished from the world. In fact, what I'm going to argue today from this passage in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, is I'm going to argue that as Christians, we must labor to bring distinct good to the world. And in doing this, it will ultimately bring glory to God. Let me say that again. As Christians, we must labor to bring distinct good to the world. And in doing this, it will bring glory to God. Follow along as I read Matthew 5. 13 to 16. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to followers of his, his disciples, crowds that are gathered. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's good and holy and inspired word. May he write its truths on our hearts. So we are early in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In verses 10 through 12, just prior to this, he had just told his followers that those who would come after him in obedience to him would face persecution for his name. But he tells them this does not lead to retreat. Rather, it leads to resolve. Resolve to do good in the world and resolve to bring glory to God. Jesus uses two illustrations in this passage to articulate our relationship as the church with the world around us. These illustrations are salt and light. So let's look at the first way that we bring good to the world through this illustration of salt. So the first way that we bring good to the world is that we are to preserve goodness in the world. We are to preserve goodness in the world. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, this reference to being salt might strike you as strangely odd. But this illustration would be entirely understandable to Jesus' original audience. In their day, they did not have many of the capabilities that we have today when it comes to food preservation and preparation. So salt would be applied to meat and even rubbed in in order to keep it from spoiling so quickly. And as we know today, it also helps to enrich and to expand the, the tastes that the food that it is applied to provides. And so what Jesus is saying with this illustration, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, what he is saying is that the world is rotting. It is rotting morally. It is rotting ethically. It is rotting in matters of righteousness. 
And we as Christians are are to be a preserving agent that strives for righteousness and that intensifies the flavors of good and justice and compassion and mercy that we bring to light. We intensify all that ought to be good and glorifying to God in our world. What is it, though, to be the salt of the earth? If you think about it, the applications could be endless. A crowd this size, we could reach into the thousands on ways that we could apply this to ourselves. But Jesus doesn't do that. I think it's intentional that we, this is all that we have. And so what he's doing, he's writing a truth on our hearts. And I think then the, the Holy Spirit ought to flesh that out in our souls as to what that means to be the salt of the earth. But may I suggest a good rule of thumb as we seek to think through this? A good rule of thumb is that the various pressures, strains, pains, hurts, and lives in this hurts of life in this world, they meet everyone around us with a taste of bitterness. May us, in our interactions with others, resolve to be a taste of life from another world. May we speak a different flavor than the voices around may hear. Do you realize that when you help your aging neighbor with the yard work, or you provide them with a meal, you are seasoning their pain with a taste of heaven? Did you know when you meet your classmate who is mocked by others, when you meet him with kindness and compassion, not mockery and ridicule, you are giving him a taste of heaven in a world that might feel like hell? When you treat your insufferable, even grating co-worker. When you, treat, when you treat him with long-suffering and grace, you are flavoring the bitter water that they drink in this life with living water. The relentless grind of life in this world is hard. It's a lot harder than many of us wish to acknowledge or than many of our neighbors wish to acknowledge. But in our gentleness, we can meet others as if we are an alien visiting from another world. And that world will be as appealing as we make it look. Now we must make note of a very important piece to these two illustrations that Jesus gives. If the Christian is not salt, if the Christian is not light, he or she has lost his or her purpose and frankly is of no value. Look at this in verse 13. Jesus says in verse 13, he says, you're the salt of the earth, but then he follows it up with, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I must point this out to you early on here at the outset of the Sermon on the Mount. One aspect of this sermon is that it is going to become as noticeable as a brightly flashing billboard in the middle of a quiet country road in the darkest part of night. It is going to become this noticeable that Jesus has no segment of followers who profess to follow him with their mouths, but don't follow him in heart or in action. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a seminal book on the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to make note of it and order it later, just write Lloyd, just Google or Put in on Amazon, Lloyd-Jones, Sermon on the Mount, and you'll find it. 
He said this on salt losing its taste. He said, as I understand it, and it seems to me to be an inevitable piece of logic and interpretation, there is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. It's possible that you're gathered here today and one of the things that pushes you away from Christianity or gives you pause about Christianity is hypocrites. Well, Jesus isn't a fan of them either. In fact, he calls his church towards something that is opposed to hypocrisy. In one sense, in our sin, though, as human beings, with our human nature, we will never rise above a level of hypocrisy. But know that Christ is always calling his church towards a life that brings glory to him and serves her neighbor. Remember the question that we're asking as we study the Sermon on the Mount. What does a Christian look like? Well, the word Christian answers it for us. The word Christian means little Christ, follower of Christ, one with Christ. So a Christian ought to look like Christ. Let me ask you this question. Does the life that you live make the Christ that you profess look wonderful? Let me ask you that again. Does the life that you live make the Christ that you profess look wonderful? Does the life that you live make the Christ that you profess look merciful? Or are you a person of no mercy or little mercy? Does the life that you live make the Christ that you profess look compassionate? Or does the life that you live make the Christ that you profess look as if he actually has no distinguishable impact upon you? You see, the question of a vibrant faith is not whether Christ has made us healthy, happily, happy, and eternally secure. The question of a vibrant faith, the question of a valuable faith in this life, is has Christ made us kind, has he made us gracious, and has he made us thoughtful towards others? You see, what Christ is showing us here in the very early, earliest parts of the Sermon on the Mount is that our lives cannot be a dead end where the mercy of God drives down and stops. Rather, our lives must be a conduit where the mercy of Christ flows through us to those who have never tasted such mercy before. If this is you, I encourage you. If, you, if, you're, if you're struck by this, and you're, you're struck thinking, I'm not sure how salty I am. I encourage you to revisit the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, 1-12. Just read through them slowly and allow grace to wash over you again and again. Remember the blessedness of God's nearness to those who are His. Remember the comfort that He gives knowing the exact state of your heart. Knowing the deepest fears. The most terrible longings. Know that He knows those in you and He draws near to you. And remember the very certain promises of God that follow each of these characteristics of our hearts. The greatest way we prepare ourselves to show the love of Christ to others is to make sure to fill ourselves up with that love of Christ to the point that it can't help but overflow out of us. Now moving on from our responsibility to season the earth with the goodness of Christ, like the church is a seawall seeking to hold back the rising waters of moral rot and decay, 
Jesus' next illustration presents His people on the offensive, shining brightly for the world to see. This next illustration shows us that not only are we to preserve goodness in the world, but secondly, we are to proclaim the goodness of God to the world. Not only are we to preserve goodness in the world, but we are to proclaim the goodness of God to the world. Remember the question we've been asking, what is the relationship of the church to the world? And so as I read from verses 14 to 16, note that though the church is in the world and cannot separate from the world, it is the distinctness of the church that helps her to stand out in the world. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you remember the last time the power went out in your home in the middle of the night? Maybe it was recent enough that you still feel that stubbed toe or that bruised knee from walking into a table that has been in the same place in your house for 20 years. But of course you didn't see it because you didn't have your bearings and you were walking around in pitch darkness. This illustration from Jesus, typically in a home in Jesus' time, a small lamp would be lit. And in a day without electricity, that lamp would be lit and it would be put on a stand in the middle of, of the home so that hopefully it could bring some kind of illumination to the whole house. This was how the residents of the home saw and made their way around in the darkness And this exposed the dangers that lurked in the shadows that you couldn't see through. Jesus is telling us that there must be a moral fortitude, a pursuit of goodness in the church that those around us finds to be a welcome visitor amidst these days of darkness. And here's what he's saying. As the goodness of God flows through our veins, our hearts will beat with rhythms of mercy and grace. We will shine brightly like a city on a hill. One such example of this from history. One of the great heroes of the faith over the last few hundred years, at least to me, was a man named William Wilberforce of England. You may have heard me talk about Wilberforce before, I don't know. Wilberforce became a Christian, and then after becoming a Christian, he became more and more aghast at the atrocities of the African slave trade as related to Great Britain. So he gave his life in serving the British Parliament with a relentless resolve towards ending the African slave trade with Britain. He fought legislative battle after legislative battle, lost vote after vote after vote. This spanned many decades. And yet right before his career in Parliament came to an end, he finally saw the uh, abolishment of the African slave trade in Britain. And his resolve to end this brutal practice, his faith shone like a light in the darkness. Now Jesus is not saying that only Christians do good in the world. But he is saying that Christians must march to the beat of a radical goodness in a world that struggles to hear the melody of God's love. But sadly, this is often not the case. One could contrast Wilberforce who ended the African slave trade in Britain with American slave traders who lost their saltiness or kept their light under a basket. Jesus says in verse 14, you're the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now this is interesting. If you're still figuring out Christianity, still seeking to gain a grasp of it and the claims that it makes over humanity, over this world that we live in, one picture here is that Jesus describes the world that does not know Him as being darkened, being hidden. Which is quite odd considering that we consider ourselves an enlightened people. We consider ourselves an advanced people with scientific breakthroughs, greater academic knowledge than we've ever had. We live longer. Our medicine is as good as it's ever been. Yet Jesus says we're in darkness. Perhaps, though societally you might not think we are in such darkness, maybe your soul does feel like it is in darkness. Maybe your soul is yearning for answers that are only found in Christ and in the light that He gives. If you'd like to know more about this Christ and the light and the life that is found in Him, I would love to speak with you after our service today. Sometimes we don't realize how in the dark we are until we see the light. Our prayer is that you would encounter the goodness of God in our church family. And my hope is that we would that you would see an answer for what God thinks about those who profess to follow Him and see the light that is found in Him. Now back to my brothers and sisters in the faith. You might not be a Wilberforce. You might not be on the front lines of a great moral cause of the day but you are on the front lines in the darkness in which God has placed you to shine like a city on a hill wherever He has placed you. But how often are we less like a city on a hill and more like kids with a flashlight or iPad who don't want mom to see the light in the room so we cover it up with a blanket? If you're a new Christian, you might be in that stage where everything is so fascinating, everything is so compelling, but may I let you in on a secret about the faith. The secret about following Jesus. Following Jesus will provide you with enough challenges that you will face temptation after temptation after temptation to want to obscure the light under the blanket just a little bit or a lot. You might face pressures from those in your own household or those who regularly meet you meet with for coffee or walk around the neighborhood with or those who tell you that your faith is fine, just don't make the good that you try to do uncomfortable for the rest of us. Or you will find that God is in the business of growing your faith, growing, expanding your heart, your love for Him, but you find the good that He is doing in you might be a means whereby He is leading you to a bridge too far or a mountain too high when it comes to how you live out your faith in the world in which He has placed you. But may I let you in on a secret that we see from Christ? Jesus Christ promises to be the flame that keeps our candles lit no matter where He might take us. But understand this warning. Understand this caution. In Matthew 5, 13-16, Jesus is telling us that secret Christians 
are as effective at bringing light to a dark world as silent fire alarms are to warning residents of an apartment that the building is on fire. There is no room for a secret faith for those who follow a public savior. There is no room for a quiet faith for those who follow a savior who commands the world. And there is no room for an unloving faith for those who follow a Savior who in His love laid down His life that we might live. Here's the principle of what Jesus is saying. Jesus will shine as brightly in each of our little worlds. Our relationships, our conversations, our interactions, our, our actions with others. Catch this fascinating idea. He will shine as brightly in these areas as we allow Him to shine. Now you might hear that and think, no, that goes against everything that I have ever thought about God's power and God's rule over all things. And that is true. But the principle here that Jesus is showing us, the principle here that He is showing us is that He will shine as brightly in each of our little worlds as we make Him shine. In fact, we are the light that He sends out. So where the light is not shining in us, the light is not shining. Of course, He can do the supernatural and work beyond His people, and He does. But the principle here stands. Brothers and sisters, we are the light in a darkened world. Now, I want you to note one last thing as we prepare to close. I want you to note this about verses 15 and 16. The measure of our faithfulness to Christ as He's laying it out for us here, the measure of our faithfulness as the people of Christ is not what we think about ourselves, but, about, but what those who are not Christians think about us. Let me say that again. The measure of our faithfulness, according to Jesus here, is not what we think about ourselves, or not even what our brothers and sisters in the church family think about us, but what those who are not Christians think about us. Look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under, under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you see this? What's the upshot of our light shining before the world that does not know God? They see this light and they give glory to God. They see this light and they say, and, and, and something strikes them. They, they, we perhaps are able to have conversation with them. They see the light of the hope that we have in Christ And this produces them giving glory to God. New Testament scholar Douglas O'Donnell sums it up like this. When we we feed the hungry, when we clothe the naked, when we welcome the stranger, when we visit the sick and those in prison, it is though we become like Moses when he descended from Mount Sinai. Our faces show to this dark world something of the Father's glory. This week marked 19 years since the terror attacks of September 11th. We're in the throes of a pandemic and of the social, economic, and emotional fallout that comes with it. Massachusetts has the highest unemployment numbers in the nation. Some of the worst wildfires the West has ever seen are raging on the other side of the continent. We're all looking forward towards the uh, joy and 
inevitable spirit of gladness and national unity that the final weeks of the presidential campaign will bring. But in all seriousness, marriages are crumbling. Depression and mental illness is rising. Our grieving and pain-riddled world does not need us to hide the precious medicine of the light of God in our righteousness, compassion, and grace. The world does not need this hidden under a basket. It needs to see the light. The world needs to see in us the work of Christ. Now make no mistake, we are not Christ. Make no mistake, we are but a shadow and He is the substance. We cannot heal the lame. We cannot multiply the fish and bread. We cannot give life to the dead. But like ambassadors representing a king, we can be emissaries of His mercy, revealing a kingdom that is unlike the decaying and falling apart kingdoms of this world. You know, one thing that is absolutely fascinating about this brief passage from the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus was speaking these words as a fulfillment to a promise made long before. In the Old Testament book or prophecy of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 42, God said that He would send a light for the nations who would liberate the oppressed, who would establish righteousness and bring light that dawns on the whole world. And now Jesus, as He commissions out His disciples, He tells them, you are the light of the world. That light that Christ sends is His church. But what's the message that we take to the world? He sends us to be a light testifying of a love so vibrant, a love so determined, a love so relentless that God Himself entered the darkness and gave the gift of His life in order to triumph over that darkness and bring light. We are messengers of the light of Christ. Now I want to pause. If you're like me, you walk through this passage. And you look in the mirror and you think to yourself, I'm not sure how salty I have been. I see ways in which I perhaps have been, but I see ways in which I haven't been. I'm not sure how much of a light I am. I'm not sure of a light, how much of a light I have been. I see ways that I have been, but I see ways that I haven't necessarily been. My friend, the purpose of this sermon is not to slap you on the back and tell you to try harder. The purpose of the sermon is to urge you towards being salt and light. But urge you to see that the greatest way that we are salt and light is to look upon Christ who, when we consider salt who He came to preserve good in this world, He is the greatest example of this for us. He is the greatest taste of good that we can know. And so we run to Him. And we find mercy when we feel we need it. And when we feel as if we are in darkness ourselves and we don't have much light about us, we don't resolve to try harder. We resolve to look closer. Look closer at Christ who is the light of the world as the Gospel of John says. Christ who is our light, and Christ who, who in, as we behold His light, it is not a light that pushes us away. It is not a light in which we have to turn our eyes, but it is a light that draw, draws us in and meets us in mercy. 
Christ knew we would never, could never perfectly be salt and light. That's why he came and that's why he died. Because we but magnify that which is the substance. So let us set our eyes on the substance of Christ and seek to magnify him, but not be mistaken in thinking we can do it without him. In Matthew 5, 13 to 16, the last thing that it shows us is it tells us that our good works point our world to our good God. God, our Father. Not God the distant one. Not God the detached one. But God, our Father. Our good works are a means whereby God the Father invites the spiritually orphaned who are in darkness to come into His family and find a home. So what's the relationship between the church and the world? Is it like a party on a college campus? No discernible difference? No. But it's also not like a middle school dance with both groups retreated to separate sides of the gym. The relationship between the church and the world is one of distinct difference but direct goodness. Goodness that stretches across the chasm of that difference and meets it with a love that is from another world. Goodness that says to those in darkness, there is a kingdom of light. May I introduce you to the king who promises to bring you out of darkness and into the light. Church family, we must labor to bring distinct good to the world. And as verse 16 tells us, ultimately this will bring glory to God our Father. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would strengthen us for the task of being salt and light. We pray you would help us to see that this strengthening comes not through greater resolve on our part, but through greater beholding of who you are. So Lord, where we feel we have not been compassionate, where we feel we have slacked in mercy, where we feel we have lacked in love and in grace and in gentleness and in patience and in kindness, where we feel we have fallen short of these towards others, we pray that you would renew us through beholding the mercy and the goodness and the compassion and the grace and the kindness and the care and the gentleness and the patience that you have for us as evidenced in Christ. So Lord, refill us by setting our eyes on Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would use us to be salt and light to a world that needs preserving and to a world that needs true enlightening. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.